Good morning, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Community Church. If you are, if you are new here, um, and I do see a few new faces, it's always exciting to me. I don't want to make it weird. I'm not going to have you stand up or do anything weird like that. Um, but my wife and I will be hanging out, and our staff will be hanging out in the foyer afterwards. We'd love for you to just um, say hi, let us know you were here, and we can catch up a little bit. It matters to us. It matters to me. I love looking out and seeing, seeing all faces I recognize and then brand new faces because that's an opportunity for the Lord to move um, in their hearts and for us to show what a community can be. I mean, the word community is in our name for a reason. It's not just a place where you just come and, and hear a message and then leave and that's the end of it. We consider ourselves a, a family and a community and it's important that we all then can rely on each other, get to know each other, and, and have that small church feel that sometimes you lose when you get a little bit larger. So um, welcome. Just glad that you guys are here out there online, uh, wherever, whenever you're catching us online and all the platforms. Um, welcome to you. If you've missed any of the messages in our series, we're going back to Mark. Um, Jesus, the servant Messiah. It's a study in the gospel of Mark. And it seems like it's been about 100 years since we were in Mark. We took the time off for, for the Easter messages and then last week. It just seems like it's been a long time, but really it's only been less than a month. So um, I am excited to get back into Mark, though. The Gospel of Mark is amazing. If you haven't been with us as we've traveled through this, um, we're in chapter 8 now, and you can go back and catch it through all of our platforms, through our website, or through our, our YouTube channel, you can go back in and check the archives of messages and kind of get caught up. But the Gospel of Mark is amazing because it, each gospel um, talks about the ministry and the life of Jesus from a different perspective. Some emphasizing that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Um, some emphasizing, like Mark, that he was a servant. He was a Messiah, yes, the Messiah, but came to serve. And that was so out of what everybody had expected to see when the Messiah came that many of them struggled and still today struggle to see him as who he really was. So that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. It talks about the servanthood and, and the things that Jesus did and accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit while he was here uh, on earth. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, quick catch up from three weeks ago, from a month ago, when Pastor Craig taught last in Mark. He taught in chapter 8, and it was verses 1 through 21, so he taught basically the first half. We're going to be in Mark 8, 22 through the end of Mark, <coughs> excuse me, today. And what he talked about was kind of the, um, uh, he talked about feeding the 4,000. So the week before that, we talked about feeding the 5,000. Then there's a separate event where Jesus feeds the 4,000. A different event, but very significant. But then, most importantly, for the flow of what we're going to talk about, he talks about the idea of the yeast of the Pharisees getting into the disciples, how sometimes those old attitudes, those old ideas can kind of seep in to the new thing. And you don't want to mix those old ideas with the new thing and the problems that it can create. So we'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. But they're in this region, when that happens, they're in this region that's kind of to the west of the Sea of Galilee. I don't have a map this time, 
I should have done a map every time, but to the west of the Sea of Galilee, between the Sea of Galilee and the coast of the Mediterranean, that's where they are. And they're in this region called, called Magdala. I don't think it was called that then, but called that later. And that's the region that Mary Magdalene grew up in, kind of was born in. And so that's why they call it that region. Um, but they leave that region and they're walking. Remember, they don't, they don't take a bus or ride horseback. They're walking. And they walk to the north east of the Sea of Galilee now, and they walk back into this region that's called Bethsaida. And they've been in Bethsaida. In fact, that's where they fed the 5,000. So Jesus, we don't really know why in his ministry around the Galilee, while he'll, he'll be in a region, and then all of a sudden he'll just like, we're going over here, and then we're going here, and then we're going back to here. So he travels all around, and we know that it's all by the leading of the Holy Spirit, but the reasoning for that is something that is just beyond my mind. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. You were just there. Why are you heading back? I think there's unfinished business there. So let's get into our scriptures. We, um, if you're new here online or if you're new here in-house, I use a lot of scripture. The Bible I teach from, the version is the New American Standard. Um, many other good versions out there, and if yours is different, it might read a little bit differently, but that's okay. Some scriptures I'll read to you. Others I'll put on the board. Um, if you have, on the board, on the like a teacher. It's on the board. Um, I'll put them on the screen. Um, but anyway, if you have your Bible, you can follow along. The first scripture for today is Mark 8, 22. It says, and they came to Bethsaida. That's Jesus and the disciples came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. That's how this section opens up. Now, it will seem, as we go through this, it can seem like this section is a series of kind of unrelated stories, three kind of different events or stories that seem sort of unrelated. I'm going to show you how there is a common thread that goes through all this to make a really, really important point. In fact, starting back with the yeast of the Pharisees that Pastor Craig taught about before. In this scripture, the one thing that jumps out to me is just interesting, and you see this all the time, some people brought a man. I would imagine they were friends of his, not just random people who brought this blind man to Jesus. But I notice over and over again, it's, it's so neat to see how this thread of friendship plays in the miraculous. You see this idea of the faith of the friends playing a huge part in the miraculous. You see it all the way back uh, many, many times. The, the friends lowering the crippled man through the roof, tearing a hole in the roof and lowering him down so he can be close to Jesus. It's one thing to have faith yourself, but on your own, would you ever sometimes make the effort to get in front of Jesus? It's so important to have friends who also have faith that say, we are going to do whatever it takes to get you in front of Jesus. And that's where the miraculous happens. And we see that happening all throughout Scripture. And that happens right here. So we love this. But so they arrive. The friends get this blind man in front of Jesus. And then Mark 8, 23 says, Taking the man who is blind by the hand, this is Jesus taking that blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Interesting in so many ways. If you remember back when Jesus was healing the deaf man, he put his fingers in his ears, which seemed weird at the time, 
but sticking his fingers in his ears was a very real way for that man to understand because he couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. Like, I am going to heal your ears by physically touching them. In this case, the man is blind, so he can hear Jesus, but by by physically touching and, and spitting in the man's eyes, the man has no doubt this is the focus of what we're doing here. Now, that part about spitting can be unusual to some people. I'm going to tell you how it's not as unusual as you might think. So Jesus touched this blind man in a way that he could feel. And he takes the man out of town. Now, why did he do that? Because they were, there were crowds around. There were the friends who brought the blind man to Jesus. All the disciples, they're all standing around. Everybody's watching this. And the first thing Jesus does is take the man's hand and walk him out of town kind of trying to find some space. Now, they weren't alone, just the two of them. The disciples went along. But I think he did that, and Scripture doesn't say it, but we see this thread where Jesus is trying to avoid the idea of a formula. Because if in front of this crowd, they would have witnessed, okay, the man's blind, Jesus spits in his eyes, and then he's healed of his blindness. Okay, what would you do as a human being? That's the way it does. it's done. So then, all around the village, people would have been spitting in one another's faces to try and heal them of whatever malady they had. I think Jesus wanted to avoid that awkward interaction, so he took him outside. Now, that act of spitting in the man's eyes might seem really odd. Does it seem weird to anybody else? Okay. It seems weird, but there's a very real reason. Believe it or not, back then in those days... Saliva was considered a very standard treatment for a lot of maladies, a lot of things. In fact, there's a guy, um, his name is Pliny the Elder. If you've ever heard that name, um, Pliny the Elder was a very well-known Roman uh, back then. He was, a, he was a, a, an author, a historian, a philosopher, as most of them were. They wore a lot of hats. He wrote this book called Natural History. And it's a collection, it's like an encyclopedia of 37 different science books kind of documenting various cures in the scientific world as they knew them then. Um, And Pliny the Elder lived in between 24 AD and about 80 or so AD, right smack in the middle of when Jesus was doing his ministry. And so he wrote this collection of books called The Natural History, and he claims in that book that saliva was used to cure a myriad of maladies, uh, inflammation. And in fact, in book 28, which is specifically called, and this makes me want to go out and, Kayla, where are you? You're going to want to go out and get this. It's, it's called Remedies Derived from Living Creatures. It's book 28 of the natural history by Pliny the Elder. By the way, his real name, Gaius Plinius Secundus, very Greek-sounding. So it's called Remedies Derived from Living Creatures. And in chapter 7, he says that spit can remedy everything from snake bite all the way to even epilepsy can be cured by saliva. Specifically, Pliny wrote this. He wrote this phrase in in that book. We may well believe that ophthalmalia, which which was a catch-all name for any sort of a number of eye diseases and eye problems, may be cured by anointing, as it were, the eyes every morning with fasting spittle. 
So anointing eyes, anointing. In other words, spitting directly in their eye. So you can say, I'm not, an, I'm not spitting on you, I'm anointing. We have any close talkers who struggle with that every now and then? Just anointing you. Okay, this is where it gets really, really interesting. So, so listen carefully to this. So as Jesus does this, taking the man who was blind by the hand, brings him out of the village, spits in his eyes, and he says, do you see anything? The answer to that question. What would you think? I mean, nowhere else in Scripture does he, does he drive out demons and say, okay, how do you feel now? It's just done. Jesus does it, speaks it, thinks it into existence, and it is. He doesn't check up on, well, did it work? He never does that. But in this time, Mark 8, 24, he says, and he looked up and said, no, he's asking this, you know, how do you feel? He looks up, and he looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. We have anybody here who's nearsighted, needs glasses or contacts, you know what that's like when you don't have your glass. Like, I can see things, but I don't know if that's a tree walking towards me or a person. I don't know what that is. That's what they're describing. But here's the interesting thing about this. This man had been partially healed. Partially healed. But he remains nearsighted. Not, it's, it's fuzzy still. Here's an interesting thing to think about. That man was probably more than satisfied with what had happened to this point, right? Spitting, as we know, was a common cure that day. So spitting in his eyes and restoring just at least fuzzy sight for a man who had been blind, totally blind, that was a major step forward. How many of us would be tempted to go, I'm pretty happy with that. We can stop right now. Because the earthly remedy, the common one that they would have known, even though it came from Jesus, that's a common remedy. He would have been familiar with that. And like, look, it cured me, but only to a point. But he would have been probably happy with that. All right, I'm good. I'm not even going to ask for any more. How many of us do that? We have an encounter with the Lord. He answers prayers, or he improves something in our life, or heals us of of a sickness that we have, but partway, and we're like, I'm pretty happy with just that. Maybe it's your relationship with the Lord. I have a relationship, but it's not as deep. But we don't even know that we can ask for more. We're just happy with what we've got. We don't even know that there's more blessing. There's more depth besides that. And this blind man is probably that same way. He's like, hey, I'm good. Mark 8, 25, though. He doesn't even... (laughs) The man doesn't ask for more healing, but Jesus knows there's more to it. So Mark 8, 25. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored. And began to see everything clearly. How awesome is that? That is, that's called, in Scripture, they call that progressive healing. We don't often see that with Jesus. He says, be healed, you're healed. So why now? Why now a two-stage thing? Well, like, okay, here's part. Do you think it was like, 
well, Jesus wasn't feeling up to it. He didn't sleep well last night. Didn't sleep in a Holiday Inn Express. And so, come on, that was kind of funny. <laughs> so maybe, maybe he just didn't say it quite right or do it quite right. And there needed to be more healing happening. So he goes at it a second time. And it works that time. Do you think that's accidental? Or do you think it's very intentional the way Jesus does it? It's really, really intentional. See, the first, the first spit opened the man's eyes to a point. Maybe his eyes were gummed together. We don't know. But that could have been and probably should have been or would have been mistaken for a common secular earthly healing. Any doctor, any, anybody who knew that remedy could do that. But the second, the complete restoration of crystal clear vision, that could only be by Jesus. That's only through Jesus. That kind of clarity. Mark 8, 26 then says, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So he heals this man. Remember, he took him outside away from the crowds, heals him, and he doesn't say, go back in and tell everybody what happened. Because if he would have gone back in, it would have been a huge commotion. And he wasn't quite ready for that yet. It wasn't quite time for that. So he tells the man, don't even enter the village. Just walk the long way around to your house. Now, I think none of this is by accident. Jesus is trying very intently to teach the disciples a lesson. And that's a lesson that goes all the way back to a month ago when Pastor Craig taught the yeast of the Pharisees. Like, you can think you know. You can think you understand my heart. You can think you're grasping the teaching. But do you really? Because you still seem to want to hold on to some things that I'm telling you to set aside. You still seem to think you can do things in your own power. You still seem to think you can come up with a better plan. And I'm telling you, that's not how it works. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples a lesson here. Remember, again, going back to the East of the Pharisees, he had severely rebuked the, the, the disciples for their lack of faith. So they had pretty much caught an earful from Jesus. And here now, now this is subtle, this is a subtle lesson, but they're going to have time to think about this and to, and to talk about it, that he heals this man in a way that illustrates that you can be healed only partially. Your sight, you can see, but not clearly. And never be satisfied with how clearly you think you can see because there's more. And you can and should be pursuing more clarity. That is such a lesson for us today. You can know Jesus, you can call him the Messiah, and still not have clarity about what that means in your life. We should be pursuing that clarity all the time. That's the lesson that he's trying to give. But full clarity for these guys is not going to come until they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then their eyes will be fully opened. Even then they struggle with some aspects of it. But then they can see. Mark eight twenty seven. Jesus went out. Again, this is part, probably what we would call part two of, these, of this story going on. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, so they're just, they're just walking, they're just walking up to Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? Just kind of an offhand question, but it's an important question. 
who do people say that I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi is if uh, the region of Bethsaida is kind of north and west, just like almost on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is about another, I don't know, 10, 15 miles to the north. Here's a picture of what Caesarea Philippi would have looked like in the day. It's a series of temples. In fact, the temples were um, originally built by the Greeks uh, to honor the Greek god Pan. And the lore from Greek mythology says that behind this temple on the left, there's a big cave that you'll see in the modern pictures, and that cave was the entrance to hell. <coughs> so you see that. Later on, though, it was co-opted and renamed Caesarea Philippi in honor of King Herod's brother, Philip. Here's what it looks like today, though. This is kind of what's left of it, and you can go there today and you can see it. Again, that big entrance to the left was the mythological entrance to, to Hades. So that's kind of what it looks like today. I show you these things. This is by the Golan Heights, by the way, if you've been to Israel. It's kind of in that Golan Heights area. Um, I show you these things so that you, the, the Bible is not a collection of mythological stories. It's real things that happened in real places. And they can be documented. They can be proven. You can go there. You can touch it. You can see the way these things happened. The Bible is not a fairy tale. It is so real. And the more you dig into it, the more you have clarity on how real it is. So in response to this question, who do people say that I am? Their answer, Mark 8, 28, they told him, saying, this is a collection of them, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So he's saying that the people think that. Now, the people in general who had seen him, had seen him perform some miracles, had heard him teach, but they didn't know him as intimately as the disciples did. The disciples that followed him around and heard him talk all the time. So then he continues, Mark 8, 29, and he continued questioning them, but who do you say I am? It's like, I know what they say. Okay, they say I'm those things. Who do you say I am? That is a critical, critical question. Peter answers. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Okay, that's huge. That is huge on so many levels. The word Christ translates as the Greek word. Remember, if it's New Testament, it's going to be Greek translation. Old Testament will be Hebrew. It translates as the word Christos, which literally means the anointed one. Remember, back in those times, the custom was if a new king was chosen, they would pour oil over his head and, and anoint him, physically anoint him. So calling Christ, calling Jesus the anointed one is an acknowledgement that you are anointed as the king. Okay. Now, Christ is not a name. His name is not Christ. He is Jesus. That's his name, and he is the Christ or the Messiah. That's who he is. The word Messiah in Hebrew means the same exact thing, the anointed one. So that question, that question that Jesus answers, or that Peter answers, let me go back. Who do you say that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ. That question right there is one that we all have to answer for ourselves. And not just, well, 
I've heard a lot of stories. I know he's Jesus. He was the Jesus from the cross. He's the Jesus that I, that I hear about on Easter. No, that's who other people say. Who do you say I am? That's an important question. You are the only one that can answer that for yourself. And it's an important question because it determines your eternity. You can say Jesus is a prophet. He was a good guy. He was really charismatic. He was a good teacher. You can even say, well, I've been told that he's the Messiah. Who is he to you? That's a question we have to wrestle with because you're the only one that can answer that. Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He recognizes that. Peter's answer is correct, but is it complete? That's what's important here. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew kind of expands a little bit on some of these interactions that we see. And Matthew records that Jesus really commends Peter for his boldness and saying, you are, you are the Christ. There's no question. It's not a question. Anybody ever answer a question that you answer with another question like, you're the Christ? Okay, it might just be voice inflection, but it shows that they're uncertain. Peter was not uncertain. Like, you are, you are the Christ, without a doubt. And Matthew's gospel says, Matthew 16, 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Barjona, by the way, Simon is the name Peter was born with. Barjona is a, is a Hebrew term, and it means son of Jonah. Anytime you see bar, that's son of, and then Jonah. So Simon Barjona is Simon, son of Jonah. And verse 18 goes on, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Wow, that's some, that's some praise from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, heaping that praise on Peter. And that is, that alone, we could teach in a whole series on that interaction right there. It's the, it's the subject of so much study. Some people say that the rock that Jesus is referring to is simply just the Aramaic transition, translation of the word Peter, which is actually Cephas, which means rock. So it could mean that. Some say that the rock is the strength of Peter's faith. Others say that just the rock is the truth about what Peter spoke about Jesus. Interesting thing, though, that I found throughout Scripture, the word rock is never used to describe a person. It's never used to describe a person. It's always used in the context to describe God and his steadfast faithfulness. So he's not using that term, at least not if it fits the structure of the whole rest of Scripture. He's not using that to say, Peter, you are a rock. You are the rock. He's talking about the faith and the conviction that Peter had when he said who Jesus is. Let's go back to that Scripture. There's an even more important word than that. Matthew 16, 18 again. If you could put that, Matthew 16, 18, put that back up real quick. There's an even more important word here that, honestly, we read it and we might just gloss over it. It would have rocked the disciples' world then, and I'll explain why. 
church. I will build my church. Why is that? Why is that a, an earth-shattering, world-rocking thing? Here's why. That word church translates as the Greek word ecclesia. And ecclesia means, literally it means assembly. But the, the meaning of it, the usage of it was in Greek politics. Greek politics, they would call the meeting, the gathering of people, of free citizens who would vote and who would self-govern. They called that the ecclesia. Why is that earth-shattering? Let me bring it a little bit more clear to you. In the mind of the disciples, the Messiah was going to be a king. And a king rules by declaration, proclamation, and force if necessary. That's how a king rules. Ecclesia is a democratic kind of society. It's got a leader, sure, but it takes all of the people, all of the free citizens in the ecclesia then have an equal say and an equal part to play in the leadership. So what Jesus is telling them is, look, this kingdom is not going to be led by a king who's going to rule by force and decree. We are all going to be a part of this body. Equal um, responsibilities, equal parts which Paul later talks about different parts of the body being equally important. But this would have been something that the disciples were like, okay, wait a minute, as if they weren't struggling enough with what he was teaching. This is the first time they would have that little nugget of information to chew on. Like the ecclesia, the body, so we're all a part of something bigger. That's something that they're chewing on now as they move into the next phase of the story, Mark 8.30 just says, and he warned them to tell no one about him. And then it goes on. Here's one reason. It's always a question people ask. Why would Jesus say, okay, this happened. I taught this. Don't tell anyone. Why would he say that? In this instance right here, and there's various reasons for it, but in this one right here, I believe it's because Jesus knew that though the disciples saw him and heard him and understood some aspects of who he was, it was only dimly. It was not clearly. They didn't have the clarity that it took for them to really understand the depth of who he was. And the more he talks to them, the more it's becoming evident that even though they see, they don't really see clearly. See, the, the mission of Christ, the ministry of Christ cannot be fully understood without the understanding of the significance of the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It can't really be grasped fully. And Jesus is acknowledging like, you guys cannot possibly understand this fully yet, so let's just don't go tell everybody yet. Let's wait. But then he goes on. Another reason, the Israelites, if you know anything about their history, they are experts at jumping ahead to what they think ought to happen instead of what was going to happen, of jumping ahead. Any ladies out there in the women's Bible study studying uh, Samuel, book of Samuel? 1 Samuel 8. Read 1 Samuel 8 if you want to see how this works. But the Israelites are being told by the prophet Samuel, like, look, you don't want a king. You don't want a king. And they're saying, yes, we do. We want a king. No, you don't. Trust me, you don't want a king. And they go, yeah, but, but yeah, we do want a king. 
No, you don't. A king's not good for you. Okay, we get that. But we get a king, right? That's how they are. And, they're pray- and he goes on, read 1 Samuel 8. He goes on to say, look, a king's going to do this and this and this, and you don't want that, right? And they're like, well, no, but we get a king, right? So they do that. 1 Samuel 8, 19 says, Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may also be like all the nations. They want to be like everybody else. And our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Whole separate study. But read 1 Samuel. So Peter and the others, they know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that. They proclaim it. They know it in their hearts. They know that beyond the shadow of doubt. They know it, but do they understand it? See, there's a difference between knowing and understanding. Understanding is a much higher level, and Jesus now is going to see if they understand. So they leave that area. Now they start the journey from up in Caesarea Philippi south all the way. They're starting that long journey to Jerusalem, where everything will be consummated there in Jerusalem. So they're starting that walk. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Get this. He's telling them this explicitly. This isn't a parable. This isn't a type and a shadow. He is specifically saying, okay, listen, guys, here's what's going to happen. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise from the dead. Now again, that's the first time that they had heard that explicitly. He's taught that before, but in parables and kind of in shadowy, ambiguous sort of ways. Scripture had prophesied about that, all the things around it, forever, and they knew it well, but they still like, okay, are you exactly talking about you, Jesus? But here, he's very explicit, and there's no question anymore. Now, Look over at Peter, who's listening to this teaching. Peter must have been feeling very full of himself right now because he had just received all this praise. I'm going to build my church on you. Great faith, Peter. You are, you're a wonderful person. So Peter's probably feeling a little full of himself. And when Jesus says this, you can just picture Peter going, uh, yeah, wait a minute, guys, hang on. Jesus, come, come over here. Come, come with me. Let's go away from those guys. Yeah, Jesus, are you sure you should have said that? We hear this, right? We hear this right here. Mark 8, 32. And he, Jesus, was stating the matter plainly. So Jesus is going like, look, this is not ambiguous. This is happening to me. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you even wrap your head around being so bold as to go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you can get back to your teaching in a minute, but come over here for a minute. What are you thinking? If you tell them that, what's going to happen? Are half of your disciples going to walk away because you just said you're going to give yourself up to be killed? You can't tell them that. Can you even imagine? Now, it's not a... It's not a disrespectful rebuke. It's not, it's not born out of, of hatred or even a feeling of superiority to Jesus. Peter thinks he's saving Jesus from himself. Like, hey, let's, let's keep that quiet. I mean, you can tell me because you can trust me, but we don't know about them. What are they going to think? 
He's trying to save him from that. Now, here's a very commonly used passage, commonly studied, commonly talked about, but I want you to think about this passage that I'm about to read in light of the praise that Jesus had just been heaping on Peter not that long before. Mark 8, 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. Ouch, talk about going from the mountain to the valley. Peter's feeling all full of himself, like, Yeah, Jesus, it's you and me, and let me... Let me be your co-messiah. Co I don't know if he said that. But to go from that to get behind me, Satan. Oh, I never want Jesus to say that to me. Here's the thing, though. Peter is doubting God's perfect plan. He is doubting the plan that Jesus just said, this must happen. And Peter's like, mm, does it, though? There's got to be maybe a better way. More than that, he's doubting and resisting God's plan, but he wants to insert his own. I know better. This is God's sovereign plan. You just said it, Jesus. I heard you say it. But let's look at this before we walk it out. Maybe there's a better way. Peter has allowed himself to be manipulated into saying this. Don't get this wrong, church. Whoever resists or opposes God's plan is in danger, very real danger of being used as an agent for Satan. And that's exactly what is going on here. Peter's reaction to this puts all of the teaching and training that Jesus had been doing with the disciples in real danger. He's starting to sow doubt. So now Satan can jump over here to the disciples who are hearing this interaction and go like, well, yeah, why does he have to die? Why does he have to, why does he have to quietly do that? Maybe there's a better plan than what Jesus is saying. Most scholars agree, and I don't consider myself a scholar, but I agree with this, that Jesus was not addressing Peter, the human being, at all, but addressing Satan, who was influencing Peter at the time. And the whole point there was an effort to put doubt into the heads of the disciples. To put doubt that God's plan was perfect and sovereign. And, and the suggestion that Jesus could or should find a way to escape his destiny on the cross was nothing more than a manipulation and a lie by Satan. It was an attempt to persuade Jesus to gain his kingdom by some other way than death and crucifixion on the cross. And by doing that, really, it would cause him to fail in the very thing he was sent to do. You think Satan was trying to manipulate that situation? That is exactly what's happening right here. And Jesus sees that and he knows he's got to address this immediately before those lies of the enemy can take root and can start to grow He's got to address it immediately. So we go to kind of the third sub-story in this. Mark 8, 34, 35. And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. What he's saying is you have to set aside your own personal needs, your own personal wants, your own personal wisdom of what the best path is. Set that aside and follow Jesus 100% and without reservation. They have to take a back seat to the sovereign plans of God. And that just paint that idea paints a picture to me of, of desperation. When I was praying over that scripture, I'm thinking about it, and I got this picture, more of a question picture. If you were drowning, you're in the middle of the ocean, you've fallen out of a cruise ship or whatever, you've fallen out, and you are drowning in the middle of the ocean. What would you give for somebody to throw you a life jacket or a boat? whatever your method is. What would you give for that? Think about that. What would you give if you were sealed inside a dark tomb? The entrance has been sealed. There's no air getting in. It's dark. You are sealed inside and you cannot get out. What would you give to have someone set you free from the tomb? Here's a better way to look at it. What wouldn't you give? What wouldn't you give? Would you go, okay, I'll give you 20 bucks for that life preserver, but I'm not giving you 30. Would you bargain at that point? Or would you say, everything I have, everything, I will give you for that lifeline, for that rescue from death. That's what he means when you have to give up everything, deny yourself, deny everything that you own, everything you think, everything that you thought you were, you need to deny all that and simply just follow me. He's given him that option right here. And Jesus asks him that very question pretty much explicitly. Mark 8, 36, 37, for what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for their soul? Like, There is nothing, none of your wisdom, none of your schemes. I don't care how smart you are. Your plans of how things ought to work are nowhere near as good and perfect as what the Lord has planned. Nowhere near. And so for us to think that we can insert our plans, maybe piggyback on top of the Lord's plans, you're in danger there. And that is dangerous territory. And that's why Jesus is dealing with it immediately like this. Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ashamed of. That word ashamed is a Greek word. It's, it's episkunoma. I'm sure I'm butchering it, but that's as close as I can get. Episkunoma. It's, it's a Greek word for ashamed, but what it means is to be personally humiliated for the choices you've made. That's the usage of that word. And really kind of in in real worldly terms, it kind of means that moment when you realize you bet on the wrong horse. That moment when you realize I've sided with the wrong team. That's that picture of, of being ashamed that Jesus is painting right here. 
So these, to tie this all together, these different exchanges, they seem like, they seem like several different little exchanges, but they all, they all go together to paint a picture of how you should never be satisfied with the clarity with which you think that you are seeing the world. It might be light years different. When you gave your life to Christ, things changed. You are a renewed, regenerated person, a new life in Christ. You are reborn. You are all these things. And you have a clarity that you would never have before. But we shouldn't be content to stop there. We need to continue and grow in the gifts of the Spirit, grow in the fruits of the Spirit, grow to be more Christ-like as we become more and more mature Christians. That's what Christian maturity is about, is having more clarity on the things that come your way. We should never be satisfied like the blind man with just partial restoration of our sight. Now, he might have that blind man... He might have been content to stop there because he didn't know he could expect more. He thought, that's good enough. How many of us do that? I know Christ. I know my eternal salvation is secure. I know that. I hear the words that I'm a regenerated, renewed person, forgiven, and I know all that. Okay, great. I'm pretty cool right there. Why even seek more? Why go to Bible studies and learn more about what the Word of God says? Why read my Bible more? Why pray more? Why surround myself with other Christians who can help me understand and I can help them understand? And why should I want any of that? I'm pretty good. I got my salvation and I got it locked in a safe in my basement. So I'm golden. We should never be satisfied with partial, incomplete sight. That's what Jesus is teaching him here. Peter declares very confidently that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, I'll build my ecclesia on that knowledge. But notice that when Jesus says that, it's only a foundation. It's only the starting point. It's a foundation of faith. It's not the end. With Christ, it's never the end. Until we are called home to be with him, we are in a constant state of learning to grow closer and more into the likeness of Christ, more like Him. And that process should never stop. We should never reach a point where we go, I'm pretty good. We should never do that. Jesus teaches explicitly about His coming death and resurrection, and Peter dares to think He's got a better plan. How many times do we do that? I feel God calling me to do this. I feel God calling me to do that. But those are fairly inconvenient. I've got a better way where I can get what I want and still do what God's telling me to do, kind of. We should never deny the sovereign plan of God because when we do, when we use our human wisdom such as it is, to devise or add to or subtract from the sovereign plan of God, We are sinning, church, flat out. God's sovereign plan should be what we pursue. Sinners are, by their very nature, sinners are blind. And they need the influence of the Holy Spirit in order to open their eyes and bring clarity to the world around them. In some cases, those open eyes show you the danger that surrounds you. When you go through life, Barely seeing people as trees and unsure of things, 
you're not aware of the danger that's on either side of the road. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you have that clarity, part of what you see is danger. I think that's the reason why a lot of people don't want that much clarity. I'm fine going through life with blinders on because I don't want to know the spiritual realm around me. I don't want to know the danger I'm in. I'm pretty cool just seeing things dimly. We are not called to that. And we shouldn't be satisfied with it. Once you begin to mature in Christ, you are in a new world. Light gets shed on objects in a way that you would never have seen before. The sun, the stars, the moon, the people around you, all these things. You see them in a new light. That should always be our heart's desire. Lord, open my eyes. Let me not be content with seeing this world dimly. Let me see it with all the clarity that you want me to have. And may I pursue more and more clarity every day. We're going to give the Apostle Paul the very last word today. I'm going to read this, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in trickery nor distorting the word of God, but by the open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they will not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants on account of Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we have your word. We have your word on paper, the written word of God, and we have your word written on our hearts. And we have your word, your son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit to illuminate that word for us. We never have to walk in darkness. We never have to walk in partial view of what's happening around us. So Lord, I repent of those times when I have purposely not wanted to know what was going on around me. Father, I pray that I just pursue your vision and your clarity of this world and my place in it. I don't want to eat from the wrong apple. I don't want to be like you. I can't be like you. But I can be who you called me to be. And that as a warrior in this world, as a reflection of who you are, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, an heir to the throne, all these things that your word promises, that's what I want. And that doesn't happen by walking through this world dimly, partially blind. So, Father, open my eyes to this world and my place in it. Open my eyes to the things that you want me to see. Make me aware. Make me aware of how you are using me. And I praise you that you do use all of us for your glory. I pray that everything I do be done for your glory. Not through my wisdom, not through my will, 
but through your will. I just pray that your power and your might is used through me to change this world. And I thank you, Jesus, that you died to reconcile me to the Father. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to take communion together right now as the worship team plays on. If you're new here, the way we do communion, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to take communion. You don't have to be a member or anything like that. The way we do it at the crosses, we have self-serve there, and there's a cup of juice, and there's bread, and there's gluten-free crackers. If you dip it in and just serve yourself, you can do that. Up front here, Gabe and I will have wine, and we would be happy to serve you. Same thing, you just dip it in the wine, and you can just form a line down there. But let's do this with grateful hearts, with maybe even more than gratefulness. Let's do it with joyful hearts because we don't have to walk through a life partially sighted, partially blind, fumbling our way along and just being content with what we have. We know that there is more. And that higher purpose, that higher thing is to pursue the Lord, to pursue his will for us, to pursue his heart as he pursues us. So we have thankful hearts, joyful hearts as we take communion and realize that it's through his sacrifice on the cross that we have access to those things. And if you're here and you have never made that decision, you're like, I I don't know Christ. Maybe you're here and you go, you know what? I do want that kind of clarity in my life. I don't want to be content just somehow making my way through life. I want that clarity that only the Holy Spirit can offer. Now's the time. It's an easy declaration. It will change your life, and that's not always easy. And that can often be very scary, especially if you think, the vision I have now, I'm pretty fine with that. But there's more, and Christ offers that more to you. And the charge for that is simply to just stop saying no and saying yes to Jesus, yes to his offer, yes You are my Lord and Savior. I accept that. I realize that there is so much more outside of myself. And I want to know that there is a higher reason for me being here today. I want to know that there's something outside and beyond myself. There's a higher purpose, and I can be a part of that. And I want that. I want my eternity to be sealed in heaven, yes, but I want to be a part of something larger than myself. I realize I need to be. And if that's you and you can say that and you can pray that, then take communion with us today and celebrate what God has done in your heart. That's all it takes. There's no class. There's no special handshake. You stop running. You stop being content with the partial. And you accept the fullness that Christ can only offer. That's what communion is. Let's take that together. We have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for something, look for somebody with a lanyard. They would be happy to pray with you. Let's worship together. Listen to the words of the song. They are such a prayer about the glory of God. And then we can move around and take communion together. So however you want to respond, feel free to start moving around right now. Thank you, guys. Bless you.